Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Grace is on the Case. I'm your host, Grace Lynn Keller, and today I'm covering a case that's a little different from the typical stories I've told on this show. It's less of a true crime story and more of a case of the supernatural, but I have always been fascinated with this one, and I think you will be too. It has gripped our media for over 60 years and raises the age-old question, is there life beyond Earth, or are aliens just a myth? This is the story of Betty and Barney Hill. The year was 1957, and Barney, a 39-year-old Black man living in Philadelphia, was falling in love with a woman he met while on vacation. Her name was Betty, a rural New Hampshire native with three years his senior. The couple pursued a long-distance relationship, marrying in 1960. It's important to note here that Betty and Barney married at a time when interracial marriage was not widely accepted in the United States. It was actually still illegal in most places, 31 states to be exact, and the wide majority of people did not approve of it, according to polls from the time. But despite this, Betty and Barney were very much in love and excited to start this new chapter of marriage together. However, even after they were married, they still had to continue their long-distance relationship. Betty worked as a social worker for the state of New Hampshire, a role she had recently begun after earning her bachelor's degree. At the same time, Barney continued his job as a postal carrier for the U.S. Postal Service in Philadelphia, a job he had done for nearly two decades. When Barney was finally able to transfer to Boston, Massachusetts, he and Betty began their life together in New Hampshire. This did pose some challenges, as his job with the USPS in Boston was very different from what he used to do in Philadelphia. He was now sorting mail through the night shift and had a two-hour commute both ways in the notorious Boston traffic. All of this considered, though, those close to Barney and Betty said that this summer was some of the happiest times of their lives. So when the end of a long work week finally arrived, a few months after Barney had settled into his new life in New Hampshire, he asked his boss for some days off. Betty already had a pre-scheduled vacation from her job, scheduled for the upcoming week, so Barney decided that he wanted to surprise her with a road trip to Niagara Falls, New York, and Montreal, Canada. But since the idea to take the trip was so last minute, the banks were already closed by the time he arrived back home from his shift. And I kind of laughed when I saw this just because in this day and age, we have credit cards and banks are pretty much open anytime, or at least ATMs are. So the fact that not that long ago, there was no way to get money after like 5 p.m. on a Friday is pretty crazy to me, but I guess that was just the reality. So they decided to pull all of the funds they had on them at the time, which equaled about $70. And just for context, that would be about $650 in today's money. And decided if they were smart and thrifty, they could still make the trip work with the cash they had. And by all accounts, the trip went great. Their route brought them from New York, then through to Niagara Falls, Toronto, and then to Montreal. In the evening of Tuesday, September 19th, Betty and Barney heard that Tropical Storm Esther, which eventually developed into a hurricane, was headed up the coast straight for New Hampshire in their hometown. So after a full day of travel, they decided that it would be best to make the five-hour drive home before the weather got bad. 
They didn't want to be stranded in Canada, and they were worried about their property back in New Hampshire. They hadn't prepped it for adverse weather conditions when they left. They drove through the night, winding across the dark, steep, and sometimes treacherous mountains. As they neared Lincoln, New Hampshire, Betty caught what would be her first glimpse, but not her last, of a bright light shooting smoothly across the sky. At first, she assumed that this was a shooting star. But then, out of nowhere, the light stopped abruptly in the middle of the sky before continuing to move again in an entirely different direction than before. She knew then that something weird was going on. This wasn't a shooting star. She asked Barney if he had seen it too, and when he agreed that it was weird, they decided to pull over on the side of the road and get some binoculars out to get a closer look. Of the two, Barney had always been described as the more scientific-minded and level-headed one, so he wasn't even entertaining the notion that this light could not be easily explained. He assured Betty, who had the idea that the light was some sort of mystical apparition, that it was probably just a passenger jet. He had served in the military and had experience with all different types of aircrafts. So with that, they got back into the car and continued on through the night. But the light continued to move across the sky in strange patterns, never leaving their sight line, almost as if it was following them. By this point, even Barney had an eerie gut feeling that something definitely was not right. Then, suddenly, any doubts Barney had about the nature of this strange light were gone in an instant. The couple drove into a section of road that was wide open near the base of the famous Man in the Mountain Rock Formation. Out of nowhere, the light shot down out of the sky directly into their path, revealing itself to be some sort of aircraft. Betty and Barney were now driving head-on toward a large, flat, circular disc, hovering perpendicular to the ground and silently a few feet above the road in front of them. Barney slammed on the brakes and reached for his handgun. Neither he nor Betty had any clue what they were looking at. In the same moment, the hovering aircraft shifted in an arcing movement and came to rest silently above the trees in the dark field next to the road that they had been traveling down. Barney exited the car and raised his binoculars again. Through the windows that he could see on the aircraft, he saw what he described as, quote, humanoid figures moving about with the precision of military officers, unquote. Overcome with fear, Barney turned on his heels and ran back to the car. When he saw the humanoid figures, he had a sharp feeling that they were going to do something to him and Betty if they did not get out of there fast. So he and Betty got back in the car as fast as possible and rapidly accelerated to escape, tires screeching behind them. But the aircraft pursued, keeping up with ease until it was directly over the top of the car. At this point, Betty and Barney heard buzzing noises that started in the trunk and began vibrating off the back of their vehicle. Then they started to feel sleepy and everything went fuzzy. Now, up until this point, Betty and Barney's memories this night were vivid. They could recount which roads they had driven down, the conversations they had with each other, what songs had played on the radio. But the couple had only foggy memories and flashes of images from the rest of their drive home after the encounter with the strange aircraft. These images recounted were first a roadblock, then a fiery orangey-red colored orb on the ground, and they also recalled feeling the desire for human contact. They finally made it home without taking any more breaks, and this would have put them pulling into their driveway around 3 a.m., since they had had a smooth ride minus the slight detour for the strange light-turned aircraft encounter. 
But when they did make it back, they were surprised to see the sun was already rising in the sky, pointing to it being much later than 3 a.m. According to an excerpt from Betty's diary, they returned home feeling overwhelmed by what in the world they had both witnessed, but were also feeling peaceful, calm, and relaxed. So, delirious from a long day and night of travel, they allowed themselves to fall asleep, unaware that their lives were about to change. When they awoke the next day with clearer heads, they realized Betty's dress had been torn, Barney's shoes had been scuffed, and both of their watches had stopped ticking. This threw them right back into the fear and uncertainty of the previous night. Betty, unsure of who to turn to for answers, contacted a physicist who suggested that she slid a compass around on the trunk of her car where they had felt the inexplicable vibrations begin. According to the neighbors and family members who witnessed this, inside of the trunk was marked with several highly polished spots that weren't there before. These spots would cause the compass to spin uncontrollably when placed near them. So, on the hunt for answers over the next few weeks, Betty immersed herself in literature on UFOs, which is what she had come to the conclusion that she and Barney had experienced that night. This research eventually led her and Barney to meet with Walter N. Webb, a Boston astronomer who believed their account without a doubt. But, even if Betty and Barney had seen a UFO, there was still the mystery of those missing hours. Where had they been that night that caused them to arrive home hours later than scheduled, when their only memory was driving? It was soon after this meeting with Walter Webb that Betty began to experience a series of extremely vivid dreams in which she was abducted by aliens. The dreams negatively impacted her sleep and mental health and spurred the couple to seek out a psychiatrist. This was Dr. Benjamin Simon, who would eventually guide the couple through months of hypnosis therapy to help them remember what really happened the night of September 19, 1961. While under hypnosis and recorded on tape, Betty and Barney recalled a series of memories that supposedly happened during those lost hours. After the buzzing and vibration in the back of their car, the aircraft that was tailing them swooped down just above them, stopping the car in its path. Quote, gray beings, unquote, the ones that Barney had seen through the window in his binoculars, took both of them out of the car and up a ramp into the aircraft. And this is where things get a little dark, because the beings separated Betty and Barney at this point, placing them on metal tables and removing all of their clothes. They ran a series of procedures on them. They took samples of their nails and hair and scrapings of their skin, placing each onto what looked like a glass slide, which the couple assumed was for some sort of testing. They also probed needles into various parts of their bodies, and Betty even recalled that a needle was placed into her abdomen as what she assumed was some sort of pregnancy test. Throughout all these tests, there was actually one being that was not participating, but watching from the side, and Betty and Barney called this one, quote, the leader, unquote. At one point, after Betty's examination had actually ended and the beings had moved on to examine Barney in a different room, they rushed back into her room and they were all excited because they discovered that Barney's teeth could be removed. And Betty actually laughed and explained to them that Barney had dentures, which was part of just human aging. But the beings seemed to struggle to understand the concept of aging. Later, Betty was actually alone with that being that they assumed was the leader and asked where the craft had flown, saying that she didn't really know a lot about the universe. The being joked, saying, quote, 
if you don't know where you are, then there wouldn't be any point in telling you where I am, unquote. This being also showed her a star map that was located on the ship. So as this hypnotherapy with Dr. Simon continued, Betty and Barney began capturing the attention of many well-respected and top-tier astronomers, scientists, psychologists, and journalists. And while their alien abduction story was not the first of its kind, it stood out for a number of reasons. First, it was incredibly well-documented by a number of people, including board-certified doctors. It also came with a variety of evidence that pointed to its merit. Second, the couple was well-respected in their community, making them even more credible. Everyone who knew them said that they didn't seem to be crazy and were never the attention-seeking type. The general consensus among everybody was that they came forward to tell the tale because they just wanted answers. The most compelling of this evidence, in my opinion, is the marks on the car that seem to have some sort of magnetic property. Those marks and making the compass spin out of control is definitely abnormal, and there were multiple witnesses who saw it happen with their own eyes, including neighbors and family members of the Hills. Now, to play devil's advocate, I guess Betty and Barney could have done this to their own car by planting some kind of magnets like into the trunk and making the marks themselves, but I don't know how probable that is. It's a far way to go to prove a story if they made it up, and they would have run the risk of getting caught if someone asked to examine their trunk and found the magnets. Beyond that, though, their watches had also stopped working at the same time, which is quite strange. There's really no place on Earth that you could go that would just stop a watch on your wrist from working just by, like, physically being there. A watch ceasing to tick is due to things like it being broken by force or water damage or faulty internal mechanisms. The fact that both Betty and Barney's watches stopped working at the same time and didn't have any outward signs of breakage, like a cracked face or scratching, was very strange indeed. Also, the damage to their clothes is another question mark. Now, of course, if they made this story up, Betty could have ripped her own dress and Barney could have scuffed his own shoes. But when you couple these things with the watches, it just raises more questions. And another quite compelling thought is the way that the story has shaped how pop culture sees alien abduction. The Hills were not the first to report being abducted or even to see a UFO. But all of the other stories up until this point in history portrayed aliens as friendly beings. The story the couple told about medical testing, forceful, terrifying abduction, and lost time were vastly different than the narratives surrounding the idea of aliens at the time. And this was one of the major reasons why their story became the sensation that it was, and why it continues to grip the media and inform the entertainment industry. One has to think that if Barney and Betty were just making the whole thing up, they would follow more closely to the believed narrative at the time, that aliens were friendly beings. So after hearing about the extraordinary story, writer John G. Fuller approached Barney and Betty in 1966, hoping to write a book about their experience. They thought, why not? and agreed, and this proved to be the thing that launched them from a small-town couple with a wild story to an international sensation. The book, titled An Uninterrupted Journey, became an overnight success. It took their story from a local New England urban legend to an international news story, putting it in front of millions. Betty and Barney sat down for numerous interviews, were featured on multiple TV shows, and even had a full-length movie adaption of their experience hit the screen in 1975. And the effects of the Hills story still persists in the media today. 
A lot of alien abduction storylines on TV and in movies portray the experience similarly to what Betty and Barney described. A floating disc, being led up a ramp by grayish humanoid figures, being poked and prodded on a metal table. The general archetype for alien abduction in the media and pop culture mirrors their experience more closely than any other supposed abduction story out there. Unfortunately, Barney died at the age of 46 from a cerebral hemorrhage, but Betty went on to become a fairly famous and influential voice in the UFO community through the rest of her life. She was widely respected in this circle and even considered a bit of a celebrity by enthusiasts and theorists alike. Toward the end of her life, things changed when Betty started believing and advocating for any UFO encounter she had heard of, no matter the lack of evidence. She also went on to boast of witnessing more increasingly outlandish UFO sightings, causing her to lose much of her credibility at that point. But many close to her said that this was delusion brought on by old age and that she had been of sound mind all of her life until that point, and that they still believed her original account. Despite all of this, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction account still lives infamously in the UFO community. What really happened remains a mystery, but here are the most popular theories as to the events of September 19th, 1961. The first is obviously that aliens actually abducted Betty and Barney and ran tests on them before erasing their memory and sending them back on their way home. Now, believing this theory hinges on believing that aliens exist and have the means to enter and leave Earth without detection by satellites, militaries, and most people. But I do think that the evidence I laid out earlier is quite compelling, so it really comes down to what you believe. Personally, I do think that life beyond Earth exists, and I think that that life could look completely different from us and probably has vastly different technology, communication methods, and comes from a place far different from what we know as a life-supporting environment such as Earth. Our planet's biology doesn't mean that that's the only kind of biology in existence. With how vast we know our universe is, I think it's impossible that there isn't something else out there. But do I think that that something is little gray humanoids that float around in a disc-shaped aircraft and abduct humans for testing? I don't know. Now, I could have a whole separate conversation about the universe and what could be out there, but that's not what you came here for, so let's move on to the next theory. Next up is the theory that the abduction didn't happen at all, but was rather a shared delusion brought upon by exhaustion or stress. Barney had recently made a huge change in his life, moving to New Hampshire and starting the new position with the USPS. We also can't forget that he was on the graveyard shift at this point, too, and commuting two hours each way per day. That would exhaust and stress anyone out. Plus, on this final leg of their trip, the couple had already been traveling for hours. Remember, they traveled all day prior to this. They were clearly exhausted, and it wouldn't be out of the question to assume that the impending hurricane in their rush home to secure their house and reach safety could have been a major stressor. There are many well-documented accounts across the world of shared delusions between anywhere from two to thousands of people. It even has an official medical name, folia du, or shared delusion disorder. One that comes to mind immediately is the Dancing Plague of 1518, where up to 400 people started dancing in Strasbourg, Alsace, and felt that they couldn't stop, leading some to ultimately die of starvation, exhaustion, or dehydration. At the time, it was thought that this was the result of demonic possession, but it is now widely recognized as one of the largest recorded occurrences of a shared delusion. 
Could it be that Betty and Barney were also victims of a stress and exhaustion-induced shared delusion? It's rare, but I don't think it's impossible. Another theory that kind of goes along with this is that the abduction wasn't the result of a shared delusion, but that Betty and Barney made it up for attention, fame, and money. Now, a lot of people close to them maintained throughout their lives that this couple were well-respected, not the attention-seeking type, and wouldn't have done anything like that. And I tend to believe this due to the sheer number of people who came out to say something along these lines. But again, Barney had a pretty tough job, and Betty was by no means raking in the dough either. Maybe they saw this abduction story as a way to help them live a more comfortable life. The final theory I've considered is that something else was going on here entirely. What that would be, I'm not entirely certain, but maybe some sort of more terrestrial crime like a robbery with some element of hypnosis. Or maybe something so traumatic happened that night that the couple blocked it from their memory entirely, disassociating to protect themselves and replacing those memories with an alien abduction. It's far-fetched, I know, but then again, so is a real alien abduction. So that's really all I've got for you. Short of actual aliens coming down to Earth and saying, hey, yeah, we abducted that couple 60 years ago. We won't ever really know what happened the night of September 19th, 1961, out in rural New Hampshire. But this remains a compelling story, and I hope you enjoyed diving into it as much as I did. Thank you everyone so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed this episode. That helps me get this show out to more people so, so much, so please do that. Of course, all of my source material is listed on the show's website. Grace is on thecasepodcast.com, and you can contact me there or through Instagram DM at gracesonthecasepodcast for comments, corrections, or suggestions for future cases. I'll see you all next week for a new case. Thank you.